You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. Happy end of the year. We're through the Christmas season, looking back on 2022 and peering ahead to 2023. I don't know about you, but this time of year, especially between Christmas and New Year's, I reflect back on the previous year and think about uh, what I achieved, what I wanted to achieve that maybe didn't achieve, but also look ahead to what lies ahead. And one of the things I do as I look back is to think about who impacted my life, what lessons did I learn, and as it relates to this show, uh, we produced a lot of episodes episodes with very wealthy, intelligent, and successful uh, mining speculators. And so I wanted to put before you again, 10 insights from 10 experts, more timeless tips or lessons, not specific uh, stock recommendations or market commentary, but things that are applicable for you as a resource investor beyond just 2022 or even 2023. I limited it to 10 because you can only fit so many in. So if one of your favorite guests is not featured, uh, nobody was snubbed. This is just just 10 insights that I chose to choose. If there's one that you think should have been included but wasn't, if you're listening on YouTube, please link to that episode in the show notes below and tell me why you wanted to see that one featured and what insight or lesson that you learned from that guest. Also wanted to uh, thank you for reaching out for those of you that do reach out through the contact form, thank you for that. Sometimes if you do reach out through the contact form on the miningstockeducation.com website, just know that if you input your email incorrectly, if I try to respond, I can't. Sometimes it bounces back. This happened for one such listener named Jacob. Uh, Jacob, I don't know if you received my re- my recent reply, but Jacob wrote into me. He said, hi, my name's Jacob, longtime listener via the podcast. I use Stitcher as my podcast listening platform. 95% of the time I listen there. The other 5% is on YouTube. I I've been involved in junior miners for several years now. The past three and a half years or so after discovering your podcast has really helped me level up. I appreciate your hard work and I've been meaning to send you a thank you for some time. 50% of the shows I listen to twice, some I have listened to a dozen times. And I want to highlight his last two sentences there. He listens to half the shows twice and some of them, if he really gets something out of it, he listens to a dozen times. You know, I listen to my own cooking several times. Obviously, I get to do the interview, then I get to listen to at least a portion of it as I prepare to publish it. And then a lot of times I'll listen to it several times after it's published because you just never grasp everything just by hearing it only one time. If you're like Jacob, thank you for listening multiple times. If you're not like Jacob, think about maybe a show in the last year in which you really learned a lot from one of the guests. Maybe go back and listen to that one. I'm sure you'll learn something new. But for the 10 insights that we're now going to feature from 10 experts that were featured on the show this past year, the first one we're going to hear from is Rick Rule. He did a a postmortem on the huge disappointment, which was Alexco Resources, the silver developer slash producer, which was uh, sold at a rock bottom price and uh, via a take under. So Rick's going to give you a postmortem on this. He's going to talk about when to sell due to emission drift and what you need to know. And also Dave Lotan, a strategic resource investor who we featured on this show. Dave listened to that episode. He commented in the YouTube show notes to which Rick responded, which was kind of cool. And so Dave wrote and he commented and he said, of what Rick is about to share, Dave said, Rick's postmortem on Alexco is a concise masterclass, a fantastic case study for the resource investor. Thanks all for bringing this great content to investors. Dave Lotan, to which Rick replied, thanks, Dave. Means a lot coming from a pro. Listen to Rick. So, so I have a question about Alexco. 
And what I'll call the failure, if you bought Alexco shares a year ago, it was over three bucks and got bought out at whatever, 50 cents or something like that by Hecla. And then there was a stream on that deal with Wheaton, which also was bought out. So Wheaton was a winner, but was this stream restrictive, too restrictive on this project? Was the stream that caused the downfall of the company or was it management or market conditions? How would you assess this debacle? I need to disclaim that question by saying that I was a founding shareholder of Alexco. I haven't been a shareholder for a very long time, but I've followed that whole saga. Uh, I, I think the problem at Alexco was that they never, through the course of history, uh, stated their mission to investors well enough. And when they had very cheap capital, they never explored thoroughly enough. Uh, so the consequence of that was that the asset base was always, while high grade, too small to matter. Um, that's an enormous silver camp, but all they ever had the ability to talk about was promise. And because of the fairly uh, small nature of the reserve and resource, it was difficult for them to put together a, a production financing package that didn't include the stream. Clint Nauman knew that his constituency were silver speculators that wanted to eliminate, that wanted to reduce as much as possible the equity issuance so that they would have access to the optionality around the deposit at higher silver prices. But the consequence of that, the consequence that they financed when they had to, as opposed to finance when they could, meant that in order to meet uh, the company's timeline for projects, they had to take the stream. It's interesting when you look at the assignment of value uh, across uh, that capital stack, how much value is in the stream rather than the equity. <laughs> it, it, it tells you uh, an awful lot about the fact that the stream is a financial asset in a small asset is usually worth more than the equity. Hmm. Did they pay themselves too much, in your opinion, Rick, management? I didn't pay attention. Uh, certainly, certainly when uh, I was involved uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning of the company, when Nova Gold, when those people were involved, they didn't pay too much because there was adult supervision. Uh, after they strayed from the mission, the original mission was to find how big Kino Hill was. Uh, in other words, see how many high-grade vein sets they were, see what the structure was, and see whether that mineralizing event, uh, all those intru intruding veins, uh, produced a larger, lower-grade halo of silver. You know, the original mission was to make that thing 200 million ounces or 250 million ounces. The mission changed over time to putting the thing into production with as little dilution as possible, the sort of Australian model where you would use the free cash flow from a small mine to make a big mine. I've seen that work exactly three times in my career. And so when you had the mission drift from finding out what you had to trying to put it in production, I exited. And after I exited, I have no idea what happened to management expense. I paid no attention. I have enough on my plate uh, with the 60 sort of companies I'm long. <laughs> I didn't want to worry about the 2000 companies that I wasn't long. So on, on exiting your position, when there's the mission drift or the change of mission, did you get burned early in your career? Is that why you now implement that approach in your personal portfolio? 
many times, uh, many, many, many times. But I was influenced by the writing of Warren Buffett, uh, which said there's always there's always an excuse to buy something if you feel like buying. Uh, Buffett said that most investors should pretend that they're hog farmers. Uh, their capital base is the trough. Uh, and what, let's say that you're in the sector and you can afford $250,000 in the sector. Um, you assume that there's room at your trough that is in your portfolio for 10 companies. And the first thing that you have to do is limit the number of companies that you have in your portfolio to the numbers of hours per month that you're willing to spend understanding the companies. Uh, I, I tell people one hour per month, meaning read the filing statements, you know, look at the insider reports, all this kind of stuff. Buffett suggested that if you allocate yourself 10 companies to add a new company, you have to fire an existing company. And I found that that was very, very, very good discipline for me. Uh, I don't, I must say, include things like BHP and Rio and Exxon because I don't think that I have to have the level of granularity in those companies that I do smaller companies. But certainly in companies like Alexco, I have to think that I have the ability to understand those companies better than my competitors. Uh, and that means, as an example, that a company that's experiencing mission drift uh, or a company with selling general and administrative expenditures that exceed sort of 25% of project expenditures or companies that are involved in small mining projects, say less than a million ounces uh, by way of a target of gold as an example, I just don't want to know about. I don't care about. I'm not trying to say that those aren't valid speculative targets for other people but they don't fit in my portfolio. Next, we're going to hear from Tyron Breitenbach on looking for bullish signs in a junior mining stock as a retail mining investor. Uh, Tyron has ex extensive experience on the banking side. He was an analyst. He's now working for Eris Mining on the, the capital market side. Listen to Tyron from his experience in the sector. So you uh, you are geologically trained, so and you have the privilege to be on site. Most of my listeners are not geologists, and they won't be able to be on site for these companies they might invest in. So, what key signs should they look for for a bullish sign for a company? So, for example, I've been told in the past that the most bullish, easy thing for a retail investor to identify uh, in a junior mining stock is if you see the CFO buying stock in the open market because he is the most pessimistic person usually at the at the company. Would you agree with that? And what might be some other tips you could give? I really like that. I love man management insider buying. It is so rare in our sector, although I'm going to give a plug for Aeros Gold or Aeros Mining, where, where I work at right now. I mean, we own 6% of our own company. Um, so lately, I've been watching Dave Lotan over at Orion just scooping up stock, right? Um, so that's that's a really bullish, not be a signal. And um, one of my clients, uh, US Global, they they would would own both producers and explorers, and he had a uh, he had a, a a matrix on how he picked stocks, and one of them was was management quality, right? And so for the producers, he would look at stability of earnings, how often they hit guidance, how accurate their guidance was, and for the juniors, all he looked at was was insider ownership, um, and he's been one of the best performers for a couple of decades now. So it's it's a pretty reliable. Uh, metric. Uh, something else I look for is disclosure. Okay, if you open up a press release and someone is claiming to have this great new discovery, and there's a headline, 
no meter by meter assays, no section, no photos of the core. Like that's a red flag. Like if you have something special, you're, you're dying to communicate it to the world. And I, I don't know if I should be talking about specific stocks or, or whether you, you allow that. Um, but I've recently been looking at max resources in Colombia. So we're in Colombia. So I'm monitoring, you know, other stuff going on in the country. Um, and you know, the stock hit 80 cents earlier this year. It's back down to like the mid thirties. Uh, uh, there's a lot of buzz on the street about this new copper sedimentary belt they found, uh, could be a game changer in the industry. And if you go and look at their presentation, their website, it's incredible. The disclosure that they're giving, like they have a drone. That start because there's no drill hole at this project. It's only surface channels right now, which is a very high risk proposition, right? Uh, like pre-drill bed story. Um, so they have this drone that hovers over the first channel, uh, and it's like several meters of five percent copper. It flies 100 meters up the hillside. They have another channel, kind of identical assays. Then it flows over the hill, and I think there's a lot of tools these days, you know, on the web to give retail investors who can't actually go on a guided tour with management, um, a lot of disclosure. Um, uh, uh, something else I would recommend is every year at the PDAC, they have the core shack where, where the technical group, you know, come and present the core. Uh, and that's a, that's, that's a really good chance to, to actually look at the, look at the drill hole. But um, yeah, if you're, if you're struggling with disclosure, that in itself is a red flag, you know, management buying is a good, a good uh, analog. And then, and then the final thing I'll say is, a um a change in the tempo and caliber of assays uh so there was a, a little company maybe five or six years ago called integra resources and they had an okay asset but it was it was skinny you know grade was mediocre and then all of a sudden something changed and and the woods were improving um, um it, it was just a t- different tenor of ore body. And so when that happened, I actually requested a site tour. Um, and, and I was able to sit down with the geologist. And what happened was they had a new model. They found a new vein set but because of the way they were drilling. The, 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 uh, the drill core was just clipping the vein at a, at a weird angle. And just by turning the rig around, they were actually able to understand this new geometry, look at it in a different light. And that kicked off a lot of growth. And they were eventually acquired by Eldorado and Sigma Lamac is probably the most valuable asset inside Eldorado right now. So so if, if a company that's 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 usually putting out, let's say, 10 grams over a meter and has been doing that for years, and all of a sudden they're they're drilling two grams over hundred meters, like like then it's then it's worth perking up, digging in. Uh, and I think retail investors will be surprised how accessible some management teams are. Like in this market, uh, guys are picking up the phone. Uh, I think management teams are willing to talk to anyone who would who would who would listen. Next you're gonna hear some wisdom from professional mining investor, self-directed mining investor. He also consults a fund as an advisor. Mark Zaret has been featured on the show a couple times, got excellent feedback from bringing Mark on the show. And he's going to talk about timing the bottom in junior mining stocks, especially when they've reached a certain low level. Can you get that exact bottom? And what would that cost you trying to get that exact bottom? Well, listen to Mark's insights here. And to be truthful, I mean, we're buying stock every day. Because if you don't do it now, my question would be, when would you do it? Are you waiting for the bottom? If you're waiting for the bottom, you're going to miss it. Mm. In particular, in a small cap world, I mean, there's, I, don't, I don't know what, there's no terminology for this. But one of the things I do is I look at a, port, at a position and I say to myself, what would it take to replace that today? What's the, what's the replacement uh, opportunity? And in most cases, 
it's extremely difficult. So again, with the lack of liquidity, it can actually, it works both ways. It can, you know, harm you. Um, uh, on the upside, if you're actually trying to build a position in something, if there's no liquidity. So I look at a, a position where, you know, no name, maybe no names mentioned, but maybe we own a million shares of a company and it's trading 20,000 a day. Um, how do you, you can't, you know, you can't easily replace that. So I, it's just, that's one way that I look at things that are perhaps a little bit different, but again, the conviction has to be there in front of all that to, to warrant, you know, having that position and wanting to stick with it. Next, we're going to hear from Tavi Costa. He's a portfolio manager with Crescat Capital, and he makes a point and gives you a general rule of thumb when you're invested in a successful explorer and they're developing that mineral deposit, when to sell. And he gives you this rule of thumb that I've bounced off executives who have led a discovery through the sale and they've led a, a mineral discovery up the Lasan curve. And they said that this rule of thumb is actually pretty accurate from their historical experience. So listen to Tavi give you this, this rule of thumb for time in that the peak of the first hump of the Lasan curve. And you're also going to hear from him the number one thing that he looks for in an explore co, which he describes as optionality. And he says this is even more important than management in his opinion. Uh, we also like to model those, those, what we think there is in terms of minerals uh, so we can kind of have an idea of what we think it's going to be the, the full potential of valuation at the peak of the Lausanne curve on exploration, which is usually 20% of the value of the mineral in the ground. And then we apply other adjustments when it comes to, uh, you know, risk of, of the dilution over time and the capex needed to put this into production, things like that, uh, that we think are going to be important to discount the value of that asset, even jurisdiction risk as well. And, and the risk of maybe technical team not being as savvy as other technical teams that we have. But I think the one number one thing that we hold as far as, uh, as, as strategy is, is finding optionality because we know things could go wrong. And so optionality is, is, is key. In other words, having an asset that you can, um, that you can have other plans. If, if plan A doesn't, does a pin out to, to be what we thought, then, you know, maybe we got another ground. Maybe there's another part, another target that we think it could potentially be, uh, just as, uh, as exciting. And so having those, those options, I think, uh, are even more important than management, in my opinion, uh, because, uh, having an asset with a lot of optionality, uh, to me is, is essential. Now we're on to Michael Gentile. He's, uh, a strategic resource investor in the sector. Uh, he has experience as a money manager investing in resource stocks and has done very well. He's a sharp financial economic mind. He's also on the board of many junior resource companies. And I asked him about what he looks for in an analyst report. And specifically, can you trust the price targets within an analyst report? Listen here. Mike, putting on your institutional hat, which you've referenced, uh, going back to those days, when you would look at analyst reports and price targets, did you put any credence in the price targets where they have any value to you? Um, there's a bit of a, it's, it's a game. I call it games are not a nice word, but you know, analyst covers a stock at $2. Who thinks today's point fundamental value is $20 long-term. They'll, they'll never put a $20 price target on a stock. There, there's a bit of a stair-step approach that they use. So they'll say, 
$2 target, strong buy, $4. And then the stock will go to $4 and they get further confirmation. They'll go from $4 to $8 target and, and so on and so on, right? Uh, so I think analysts have a lot of value. I talk to them quite often, still do, my new institutional venture that I'm starting. But I use them really, they're, they're encyclopedias of knowledge. They know these companies better than 99% of investors on the street. But the job of institutional money manager investors is to come to their own conclusion. So I would ask them their opinion, the facts, information on the permitting, on the geology, on the timelines, on the history of the asset, on the management. But my job as a portfolio manager is to make a decision for my clients. And so they're very valuable. But uh, early on, really early on in my early 20s, my career, you know, you see now support sales, strong buy, $20. I got to buy it because so-and-so said they buy it. But you learn quickly, you got to do your own work, right? And so that, that's key uh, to me. But the price target really should be generated by, by your own due diligence, your understanding. And your price target can be vastly different than what the analyst price targets are. And that's okay. It's different, different mindset, different longer-term view or different valuation paradigm you may have versus the analyst. Now we will hear from Warren Irwin. He is a fund manager with Rossau Asset Management. And this was the most controversial guest or episode of the show in terms of what my guest said. Warren doesn't shrink back. He's not shy to controversy or sharing his opinion. And the reason I'm pointing this one out is because he changed his thesis or his extreme bullish outlook on uranium. You're going to hear him talk that through a little. You're also going to hear me bring up to him some of the key objections that I think his critics would pose to him. And the reason why I lift this up is because he's talking about something specific in time, even though in the intro, I told you I'd give you some timeless truths. I think what's timeless about this is that we can always recognize that we could be wrong in our macro thesis as it relates to the commodity, the mind commodity of the companies we invest in. And that if you discern or if you change your thesis or you realize some of your inputs which cause you to conclude a certain thing are wrong, you want to be able to change and you want to be nimble in your ongoing investment thesis as it relates to the macro commodity outlook. You see Warren do that here. Whether you agree with him or not is a different issue, but you're going to listen to him and how his thesis changed. Um, Warren, I have so many thoughts going through my head. I can hear your objectors, objections as you're talking. And I know this interview will be a, a downer for some listeners because you had that famous quote from the Palisade interview about expecting a rip your face off uranium yeah, rally. Yeah. So this is obviously a different tone. But um, with one of the, uh, I guess, objections I can hear is, well, Warren just shared that he sold $100 million or he made $100 million profit. So if his profit's behind him, maybe that has affected his less than bullish or not ultra bullish outlook moving forward. Uh, what would be your response to that? And the second thing is, um, basically, does your macro view on what's happening in uranium, does it always have to lead to next gen is the best stock to buy? That's another criticism in a different form that I've seen. Yeah, okay, on the first one is um, uh, my call on the rip your face off uranium rally. It wasn't exactly rip your face off uranium rally, but I think my recollection was it was it was pretty darn low in price and it's gone up double or whatever. So it wasn't a rip your face off uranium rally. It was a uranium rally. Reason a little lamer than a rip your face off one. So uh yeah, you could you can nail me on that one. And uh it was um it was not as uh exciting as I had hoped. And part of the reason I think is 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 because uh of what my friend cautioned me of, and I disregarded the caution, of course, when he said, Warren. There's a billion pounds of uranium out there. There's no shortage of uranium. They'll always make up that 50 million pounds shortfall. Don't you worry about that. And then he proceeded to tell me about, uh, you know, uh, Warren, hey, do you want to help finance uh, 
finance me uh, buying 30 million pounds of uranium. I know of one seller who's got it sitting out in the desert in a, in a shed. And so, you know, if there are these little pockets of uranium all around the world and that are just gradually, you know, hitting, hitting the market over time. Right. So yeah, he was right with that one. He was a very, very sharp guy. And uh, so here we are today. We've got, um, like I said, we've got, we still have that shortfall. And a lot of people are getting excited about uranium, but you know the demand side. Frankly, it just cannot. The demand side cannot hit super duper hard uh, because it just takes so long to to build these reactors. And um, you know, then people will say the overfeeding will will solve some of that. And but you know, then you have then then you know on the other side too, you're going to well, well look at look at the uh, production numbers. Next gen's expecting well, next gen's going to be cranking out thirty million pounds a year, man. That's a lot of uranium. Well, you'd better hope that uh, that Cigar Lake, uh, Chemical Cigar Lake, or MacArthur River start tailing off their production profile by the end of the decade when when Next Gen gets into production. So there's a lot of a lot of moving parts. So um, yeah, I'm I'm maybe uh, I'm definitely not quite as bullish as it was before. But hey, that doesn't stop this market from being manipulated and just rocketing. And uh, but that's the important thing to remember is on a fundamental basis, it's um, uh, the fundamentals are pretty good for uranium and good long term, I think. But uh, but it does lead itself to uh, manipulation over the short term if enough people jump on it and flavor the day. Next up is Robert Kraft. He's the CEO of the Stock News Network and the host of the Planet Microcap podcast. He and I had a nice conversation on the show back in May, I believe, and he discussed the number one quality of successful microcap investors. He shares what he believes that is after being an investor, after providing content to investors, and after interviewing several successful small cap investors. He shares that trait with you here. Since you've interviewed so many smart people in the small cap sphere, talk to me about some of the traits that you've observed over the years. Like, what are the key traits to be successful in small cap investing or speculation? I think above all else, and we can get into nitty gritties on how people, you know, dissect balance sheets, income statements, and going through the 10Ks and 10Qs. But I'd say the number one thing across the board is that. Well, one, there is no right or wrong strategy, as long as it's legal, of course, uh, to making money in the stock market. Um, but the number one trait that I've observed is that the best, most successful microcap investors know the game they're playing. They're working towards mastering or have mastered their investing strategies through practice, repetition, observation. And most importantly, it's an investing strategy that matches their own personality. Another trait is accepting that luck plays a big factor in one's success and being humble enough, despite maybe the 10,000 plus hours uh, of work and research and all that stuff uh, that has gone into working on one's investing strategy, realizing that chance will always play a role. Um, at the end of the day, investors are, you know, we're, we're making, uh, for the most part, highly educated and, and researched bets. And even the most heavily researched and understood ideas can ultimately not work, but also vice versa. Next up is a company CEO, Tony Moreau of American Eagle Gold, a former show sponsor. Uh, this was a company that I invested in when it was private. 
at 20 cents per share. And then the company was not successful in their efforts in Nevada on the Cortez trend. Uh, they, they failed, but to their credit, they failed, they failed quickly. And so why am I bringing this up if this is supposed to be an episode with timeless truths? Uh, for a number of reasons. Even though you're going to hear the company pitch on their new project, the NAC project, a copper gold project in British Columbia, and you're going to hear them him introduce that on the show about a year ago. Uh, what I want to point out is that when you look at whether a junior mining stock is successful or not, it totally depends on your entry and the time in which you invest. Because even on this side of the microphone, as I look at various sponsors, I could show you emails of people that have made five fold or six fold their money on some sponsor companies we featured and then others that are disappointed and said, you know, this was this was a horrible investment. For the one it was a great buy and a great sell. For the other one, it didn't work out, but it was because of the time frame, because they didn't judge the type the cycle correctly. And in the case of American Eagle Gold, I was a financier, wrote a small check for for the the pre-IPO financing at 20 cents. I ended up selling I think at three or four cents uh, last year for this past year for tax loss. And then the shares were down as low as two cents, not much money in the bank. There, you know, just from looking at it, there wasn't much on the horizon and how much dilution would the company face. For me, I would need a sevenfold just to get back to my initial investment. Well, Tony went from zero to hero quickly, and I, I credit him and Stephen Stewart of the Ore Group. They really pulled the rabbit out of the hat on this one. And the shares went from two cents up to 30 cents and it went quickly from that depressed valuation and the impressive nature of the holes that they published out of there when they announced the discovery. So I'm just using this as an example to say what failed for you and within the time frame that you gave the company to perform, even against all odds, it could work out for somebody else. Most of the time it doesn't. And so it makes sense to sell like I did. But at the same time, I'm rejoicing for those that own the shares. And credit to you that if you bought shares in that two to four cent range, uh, you've done excellently. And I I wish them the best on the development. But you're going to briefly hear from Tony when things weren't working out in Nevada, you're going to hear him propose this new project. I think the shares were at like seven cents when he was talking about it on the show. Again, it went down to two cents up to 30. As I record this, I think it's in the low 20s. But listen to Tony. So Tony, your name is American Eagle Gold but you just acquired a copper gold porphyry project in British Columbia. So are you going to change your name to North American gold here? Cause we're leaving Nevada and we're heading up to your country. Bill, you're hilarious. That's a really great question. Yeah. I tried to actually call our company tier one discovery exploration, but TSX venture wouldn't approve it. So we stuck with American Eagle gold. There's bald Eagles in, in BC, <laughs> uh, but jokes aside, Bill, what we're looking for here, we're looking for great commodities, gold and copper and everyone can agree copper is huge bullish fundamentals moving forward especially with electrification of the world copper and nickel is the number one asset uh in terms of electrification so it's a tier one uh commodity in a tier one jurisdiction if you want to be anywhere you want to be in australia you want to be in the u.s you want to be in canada uh nax located in bc you know besides chile in argentina i believe it's the best area in the world to be looking for copper gold porphyries uh, so, you know, that's why we did the acquisition. We're not going to not buy an asset because it's not located in Nevada. That wouldn't be prudent to our shareholders. We've looked at so many different assets in the Nevada area, but quite frankly, nothing was better than the one that we had. Uh, so we looked elsewhere and we actually didn't find NAC. NAC found us. Uh, what's interesting about it, uh, it has huge potential. It has a non-compliant resource on it. Uh, but what happened was, They have a lot of data on there, but no one had ever digitized the data. No one had ever analyzed the data. 
Um, and that's what the previous owners, the vendors who sold the property to us did. And what you have here is a lot of geophysics, historical drilling, historical geochem. So we have five different data layers there. Now, what a lot of the geologists say is that if you have five, three different uh, data sets that coincide and show anomaly, you're in good shape. If you have five, that's a potential home run. Every single data set, IP, ZTEM, magnetics, geochem, the 18,000 meters of drilling, it all shows a giant anomaly underground. Uh, with the drill targets pretty much pick, uh, picked and permitting's currently in place. So to acquire that for 2 million shares of American Eagle Gold, which is less than a 4% dilution, it's a huge, huge uh, potential reward for our shareholders. Next, you're going to hear from Larry Lapard. What I want to point out and what you're going to hear from Larry is just that we all need humility in our macro approach. You're going to hear that Larry acknowledged that he 2022 didn't work out uh, the way he thought it would exactly. You know, we all have a theory when we look at the macro situation and what the Federal Reserve is going to do. And, you know, you just have to be humble and you have to be nimble. And when you're a gold bull, as Larry is, you have the thesis for why, why gold should be going up. And I agree with that thesis. However, gold hasn't responded as of yet. And so what you hear through this is Larry acknowledging just that the, the humility you need to have as a resource investor, also acknowledging some of the investments that didn't work out in the last year. And that's a trait you really need to have as a resource investor. This sector will, will serve you up humble pie more times than you would want. And when that humble pie is before you, it's better to just eat it because your critics, your enemies are going to try to shove it in your face anyway. So, so just go ahead and eat it. And remember that don't confuse a bull market with brains. The last two years have been painful for money managers like Larry or investors like you and me. And just don't forget the, hopefully the humility that that would have developed in you the last year in which many of your investments maybe didn't work out the way you thought, or some of your macro theses didn't work out the way you thought it should have. If that's the case, take that humility into the next bull phase whenever that does occur. And don't, as Rick Rule says, confuse a bull market with brains. Listen to Larry here. And uh, let's talk about last year as a gold yeah, fund manager. Sure. What'd you learn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always fun to be with you, and obviously in a pretty tough tape for our stuff. But uh, this is when this is when we make the big bucks, right? If we do it right in these downturns. Um, what did I learn last year? Well, I, I think I said to you earlier, I, I didn't think that Jay Powell trying to be uh, Paul Volcker that wasn't on my bingo card. You know, I thought the Fed would tighten. I didn't think they'd tighten so fast that they would throw everything into a, a tizzy in the sound money camp. Um, Mohammed El Arian used the term, I just love it, where he said, the Fed hit the brakes and the economy is going through the windshield. And I think that's about what's right, what's happening right now. Um, and obviously, it, it just hammered, you know, everything in the gold space, um, particularly on the more speculative side. Um, you know, the producers and the and the large indices, this is the kind of time we're in a downturn. This is the value of having GDX, right? I mean, the, the producers that are generating cash flow don't get hit nearly as hard as the development stories and the drill stories. And as you and I both know, we've lost a few of those. We had, you know, I made a big mistake with Arcana. It didn't make it. Um, and there have been a few others that have, have gone down. Fortunately, I, I dodged Pure and I dodged a few of the other losses. You know, uh, what was the one we were talking about? Core. Uh, but, you know, the, um, and, and so we've got stocks that are, I think, pretty good situations, but they're down 60% off their high. Larry, well, I know that listeners like the names. 
They like your forthrightness, like you 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 shared your biases. They like the fact that you acknowledge risk, which you've done. And I mean, oh, what yeah. more can you ask? You're a perma perma gold bull because I you're an audit. <laughs> so and, that's and the and one honestly, blind spot, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a big blind spot. Yeah. I mean, if you know, look, if gold goes to fifteen hundred, none of these are going to work, and you know, it stays there. And if gold goes to twenty five hundred, all these and a bunch of other shitty ones are going to work. But but these these are of all the ones out there. In my opinion, these are the best risk reward trade offs, you know, kind of what you're paying for what you're getting. Finally, we're going to end on an optimistic note. I talked in May of this year in Chicago in person with Rich Radez. He's a former broker, stockbroker, and he was unique in that he would put a lot of his clients in junior mining stocks when many other brokers, his colleagues, would not. He's also a conference host. That's where I met him at a resource conference uh, in Chicago. And you're going to hear him talk about early in his career as a broker, he put a number of his clients into this little gold stock in South Africa. It turned out to be a 130 bagger win for him and his clients. That'll get you hooked on this sector. And he's also going to talk about why he's so bullish on junior mining stocks and commodity. Listen to Rich. We're ending on an optimistic note. I wish you the best in 2023 in all your life, finances, and investing endeavors. All the best to you. You love junior mining stocks. You have a background as a broker. And tell us a little bit about that and how did you get into junior mining stocks and why do you still like them? Well, my brother and I used to own a coin shop. And back then, you can do, you were during, we were only coins you could buy were, uh, Krigerands and Austrian Coronas. So, and then I got in the brokerage business and started working with them. And uh, the first stock I, we start, and we were already sort of geared into the gold market. So, the first stock I ever bought was a South African stock called Consolidated Modern Fontaine. It went from about 18 cents to $24. And I bought a lot of shares, you know, for new kind, new clients. So, you know, most brokers hardly ever make their clients any money. But after you do that with some you guys, you know, you're, I mean, you're, you're their, you're their broker for life. You know what I mean? And you know, these people, they, but they had interest in the overall world situation. You know, you, you got to deal with people that understand really what's going on out in the real world. And let's let, and people, people don't know what's going on in the real world. It's, it's an opportunity for, we are in a, for junior mining shares. This is a time of a lifetime, as far as I'm concerned. I waited 20 years for this market. We had a depression. All the weak sisters are out of the business. They couldn't make it. So the, the market, and they weren't bailed out. The market just, they just died. So the government didn't help them out. So this, this, the wrong, so strong sisters are left. So it's an opportunity here. Like when I got in the business, there were like a hundred South African mines. There's only about eight now. The mine that I got into consolidated mine. It was, and Eric and I were, it's on our website. We were, we went to South Africa and went underground and it's closed. Once you, sh- when you shut down a deep shaft of mine, you can never reopen it again. There's rock burst. It's unbelievable. So all those, all those mines in South Africa that they opened years ago, they'll never be reopened again. That's why I'm so bullish, really long term on, on, you know, now it takes 15 years to open a mine. I mean, nobody's talking about that, but it, I mean, it's, it's not, it's just going to create a lot higher prices. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. 
There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks and don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met, you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks.